Yeah, I'm going to hit record because we're like doing half the show before we hit record. And if I don't hit record, you guys are going to go on for another hour before I get around to it. Well, there was the point where, yeah, yeah, (laughs) there is that. But there there is the point where I was getting all of the stuff out of my system because I'm not going to, you're going to delete all the part where I mentioned the air. Um, uh, at least the part you're not speaking I, for any hypothetical employer, past, present, future. Yeah, I'm not. Or, I am not invented. speaking for any hypothetical employer located on building of an Air Force Base area. Definitely yeah. not speaking for those guys. All right, so, things have already gone sideways. So, <laughs> yeah. So with that, let's introduce our mention and dispatches audience to who is not speaking for any employer in particular. Uh, Chris Weave is back with us. Chris is also, uh, we can mention you are the co-chair of the Connections Online, or you're the chair of Connections Online, and and the madcap hilarity that ensues with that. So in addition to talking all kinds of sci-fi and space and professional wargaming stuff, you also talk Connections Online stuff, which is relevant to tonight. So welcome back, Chris. Thank you. Glad to be here. And uh, did, did you, did I sufficiently caveat that or do you need to add your own disclaimer somewhere? Well, I, I will go ahead and read you the the, uh, the bio that I prepared. I am a war game designer and naval analyst and my hobbies include naval history, space combat, and not speaking for my employer. There you go. And a first time appearance for mentioned in dispatches, although no stranger at all to the professional wargaming community. Uh, Mr. Ed McGrady is here and, and welcome, Ed. We've been on a lot of conversations before, but never one I got to hit record on. So, uh, oh. <laughs> and and uh, Ed, you're you're sort of speaking for your current employer, aren't you? Since it's you. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, I have a lot of different titles, though. I'm an adjunct senior fellow at CNAS, who I'm not speaking for, but they like me to speak. So uh, I'm an adjunct senior fellow with a game lab over at CNAS. I'm also uh, the co-editor of the upcoming Moore's Journal on Wargaming that we're going to be putting out. Uh, and so that's going to be a technical professional journal on wargaming, all the different aspects. I also uh, am sort of the direct co-lead thing in person that coordinate coordinator for the Moore's uh, certificate classes in wargaming, which includes cyber tactics, our general class, which is coming up at the end of October, a whole bunch of other stuff that we do. And then finally, I'm organizing a a Moore's special session on wargaming with partnership out in the Pacific uh, that will be in Hawaii at the uh, end of February, the last week of February. We're going to be doing a special Moore's session out in Hawaii hopefully with our partners and allies out in the region talking about Pacific theater wargaming. So that's just some of the stuff I do. So, And I suspect that a, a session in Hawaii in February will be well attended by those folks otherwise stationed at Fort Drum and Fort Carson and Fort McCoy and Fort Richardson, right? They, uh, they're all going to want to escape their confines in February and head to Hawaii with you, aren't they? I, I would encourage them to do so. We're looking for as many attendees as possible. If people want to present uh, send me an email with your presentation and we'll be glad to put you on. Um, but we're hoping also to get people coming from the other direction, from Japan, Singapore, uh, places like that. Yeah. Places that are a little less frigid in February. Yes. So. Yeah. So for the hobby audience that that's tuning in here, uh, Moore's is the Military Operations Research Society that obviously does a lot more than just wargaming, but it seems to have finally over the last 10 to 15 years discovered that, hey, wargaming is a thing and there are some people that care about it. And, you know, maybe we, we ought to also instead of just sort of ignoring it. 
Yeah, Moors is virtually uh, connections is the conference for for linking hobby wargaming into professional wargaming, and it's becoming the professional wargaming conference. But Moors is sort of the professional society that has has best incorporated wargaming into its into its uh, into its role. And uh, there's a lot of uh, activities they do beyond just what I described. They have a they have a working group that holds talks and. Uh, Peter and I have a podcast we do on there and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, the, and it, and there's a lot of overlap between the the Connections Conference and the Moore's Conference. So there's a and a lot of a lot of the folks, you know, the usual suspects show up at both places. No, let's let's caveat this. The usual suspects with security clearances get to show up at Moore's. Yes. No, no, that's not true. Our 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 conference, for example, is going to be completely unclassified uh, because we have partners and allies there. So Moore's can hold classified conferences that's different than connections yeah and um it's my understanding more is usually uh in the past would hold classified conferences but i think they've loosened up a little bit recently just like dod writ large has um there's basically the frequently there are directives that come down from leadership at dod saying we need to be more expansive with our allies and bring more of them in and um, like if you go back and you read some of the the wargaming the wargaming popular literature of the um, of the like 1980s and 1990s, I'm thinking about like Thomas Allen's book War Games, Peter Perlow's book The Art of Wargaming, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. You, you know, one of the recurring themes is these things are always uh, secret, no foreign. You know, they, they never let any foreign nationals anywhere near it. Yeah. That's just simply not true anymore. Um, in fact, back in 2008, when I was a professor at the Naval War College in the wargaming department there for global that year, we explicitly did an unclassified global specifically because we wanted partner participation. And we got some people that aren't the usual suspects, like we had African countries come and participate in that. And part of the reason why we did that was that the 2007 maritime strategy had explicitly said that we should do events like that. So we did a game about the maritime strategy that was also an implementation of the maritime strategy. So, um, you know, it's it's turtles all the way down. Well, you know, professional war games occupy a space all the way for a single subject like China from unclassified, which I run for CNAS, uh, all the way up to fully informed, which nobody can see. And so there's this this whole spectrum of, of stuff and with everything in between. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably true in a lot of different departments throughout the DOD wargaming world. Uh, obviously, down at the connections end where we operate, look, nobody at the Armchair Dragoons gets a security clearance for anything unless they bring it to it from somewhere else. Because we're just a bunch of chuckleheads talking war games on the web. But a bunch of us have professional wargaming experience and professional military experience and, and, and are appreciative of that crossover. And so that's why we, we continue to do things, you know, as, as insane as co-sponsoring connections online. Thing that's really important to remember about um, war games, exercises, all of these type of activities, which is that there's always an element of unreality to them, right? They're never a perfect representation of what they represent um, because they just simply can't be. I did a lot of exercises off the coast of California, and I can tell you that if the balloon actually went up and there was actually combat taking place, there wouldn't be nearly as much surface clutter getting in the way because all of those all of those pleasure yachts, all of those just normal transit type stuff, those guys would all be, you know, heading to the barn to get away from the guys with the missiles. 
All the fishing um, charters. Yeah, but we were, we were constantly having to deal with all that stuff because, of course, you know, we were doing an exercise. They were for, for those guys. It was just Sunday afternoon out in their pleasure craft or whatever. Yeah. And so there's, you know, we there's always issues like that. And the key to designing an, a war game and exercise, et cetera, et cetera, is to have the appropriate level of realism that you can generate data that you can use to answer research questions. Now, I'm not talking about the educational side. I will, I'm sure we'll talk about the educational side. Um, I can already hear uh, James Sterrett gritting his teeth at me um, when he listens to this podcast. Um, <laughs> but so, you know, you got you to gotta pay attention as to exactly, you know, what what things that you're doing that are un, un, unreal and you have to compensate for them. And that's where the role of the analyst comes in to make sure that you record all that stuff and you caveat all that stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. As you guys have heard me say, I always say that the, the guy who writes the report has three primary jobs he has to do. He has to caveat the results, highlight the subtle, squash the irrationally exuberant. And you'll notice sort of a lesser included is what happened in the game. Up in Newport, everything we did had high visibility, which means that by the time I've got the game report out, the people who have been there have been talking about it for weeks. Yeah. And so, so a lot of what I had to do was to say, no, that's not what happened. <laughs> to, to, to note real quick, Chris is saying the guy that writes the report, it can be a gal these days with absolutely yes, no problem. Yes, yes. That said, I'm guilty of it also. You're going to hear the word guy pop out of our mouths quite a bit. I'm trying to train myself to be much more inclusive, which is why you're going to hear the word folks come out a whole lot because folks is all inclusive and uh and look i'm I, I'm, I'm a southerner at heart so you're gonna hear folks out of me a lot yeah, but i think um, i think this i think this points out the the differences between games exercises and analyses right that, mm-hmm. that they do different things so with an exercise you have safety constraints and so you can't sink the aircraft carrier because that would be unsafe for everyone on the aircraft carrier <laughs> in a game you can sit you can have the aircraft carrier damage you can have someone tow it into china and repair it and sell it back to you uh, you can do that in a game. You can't do that in an exercise. Uh, and so the the different limitations and strengths of each one of those means that, as Peter Perlow would say, the cycle of research is what you really have to focus on, which is using analysis to understand quantitative measures such as, gee, can I get enough bullets? Uh, and exercise to determine whether you can actually do something with those bullets in the real world and a game to allow you to shoot whatever you want to shoot as opposed to in the real world where you got to shoot the target. And so that's, that's, that, that I, I think that just highlights the differences between these different categories of things. Yeah, yeah, I would I would agree with that with the with the one caveat that I really wish that Peter had used a different word than analysis there. Like studies, studies I think is 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 better. And the reason why I think that is, war games have analysis in order for them for you to translate data. It's like anything in order to translate data into knowledge, you need to do analysis on. It. And so war games, you have to do analysis on it. Otherwise, Chris. I will have to interrupt you. You do not get data from war games. You get you get insights from war games. The people that collect data on war games are in many ways on a fool's errand, in my opinion. You get you get insights from war games. You don't necessarily get data that you're going to analyze. 
you know, I'll, we shot it four times and we had two of them hit. You're not going to, that's, that's you're, part of the input. You're, you're using a much more, a much more specific definition of data than I am. I don't think data has to be quantitative. I think anything that, that somebody writes down in their notebook is data. Anything that, uh, that one, one side produces as their move sheet is data. But when we use that terminology, that's not what naive people hear. What they hear is quantitative data. Yeah. And, and look, social science guy here who lived in both the quantoid and qualitative worlds, um, I, I, I always ask when people start talking about stuff, which kind of data are we, are we looking at? Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's fair. That, I mean, and that goes down to, I mean, wargaming professionals have a professional responsibility to make sure that they are clear when they uh, present their results and they have a professional responsibility to make sure that, that when, when um, I don't want to say that their results are used properly because of course we don't have control over that. Right. But I mean, I think a big chunk of the report is things like you know a lot of intel documents have something at the back that that says what we mean when we say and it's a place where they specifically say this is when we say most probable this is what we mean by that and it's so glossary. i'm sorry what it's the glossary yeah and and, and that was something i was going to note is that you know on a previous podcast this season when we were talking about sort of the differences between games and sims um you know when, when we had volko and james here that that one of the things that really came out of all of that was the idea that you need to be specific about the context in which you're using your vocabulary yes. and establish your definitions, not necessarily, and this is, this is something that, that a lot of folks tend to, they think I'm on some vast, you know, vocabulary crusade across the wargaming world and I'm not in that establish the definition within the context in which you're trying to use it that doesn't mean you're boxing out all other definitions for no. the rest of time what it means is right now within the context of what I am discussing here in in and in, in the present when I say this this is what I mean and so the idea of the differences between training and learning and education the uh, the differences between games and sims the whatever they may be when I say this this is what I'm referring to. And, when, and the idea of data or the idea of analysis or the idea of a simulation, the, yeah, when, the when I work for the, with the CIA. When I work for the intelligence community, I wrote an entire paper on what does the words transparent ocean mean or ocean transparency, because I'd had lots of conversations. I was an ASW guy. I had lots of conversations with people and we all use those words. But if you sort of scratch the surface a little bit, everybody had a different mental model about what was meant there. Yeah. And so I literally wrote a white paper that said, here are all the different ways that you could interpret that phrase. Yeah. yeah. It well, was like, it was literally like eight pages long of all the different ways you could interpret that phrase and what the implications of them were. So, and, and unfortunately I left before I got a chance to go any further with that project. That was sort of a self-initiated thing. I want to go back to something that Ed said though, which is insight is an output. Insight is the result of an anal analysis. You don't get insight. I mean, sometimes people will, sometimes you can get an insight by just being in the room when something happened. But a lot of times, Times, you know, when I said caveat the results and squash the irrationally exuberant, a lot of times it's like, no, 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 that's not really an insight because what you think happened is wrong. That's not what happened. That's not, that's not what that means. I mean, it, it, I, I can think of an example from that Brian McHugh talked about when he was doing um, uh, uh, exercises at the Marine Corps warfighting lab. He had a young Marine say, you know, the thing I really learned about this is that those, that particular missile is just phenomenal. It's just really good. It's like that. 
that's an input. The well, PK of that missile is an input. The, the problem with this, the problem with this general line, though, is that in one of the problems we have with games in the real world, as you mentioned, is people running off and abusing them and using them in ways we don't intend to. And they're not going to read an eight-page paper defining what you mean by the various terms that you use. And yeah. so every time you say a term, it's both politically and socially loaded with meaning for those people who are going to go running off and doing things with game results uh, that you may not want them to. So I, I'm just, I, yeah, I understand that you have to kind of define things and there's caveat, da, 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 da. but when you start talking in ter- certain in certain ways, it's going to carry over into both in both people pushing games in a certain direction, as well as people critiquing games in a certain direction. And so I, I think we just have to be careful in our terminology as opposed to defining it because no one's going to read our definition. <laughs> I do want to take a slight pause here because we we are drifting into war story time a little bit, but I do want to back up for some of the audience for whom the universe of professional wargaming may not be immediately apparent. There's like I I wrote a column a while back on some of the uses for professional wargaming, and I wasn't trying to be all inclusive, but some of the ones that I had described were some of the obvious ones that that the hobbyists on the outside looking in are going to see. There are training games, right? I'm going to play this game to practice what I learn, and and those. Those can be taken a step further into some form of evaluation. I'm going to play this game to demonstrate what I've learned and whether or not I learned it well enough. And we know there's artificialities built into those games. Got it. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're still, when done properly, uh, can be used to accurately you know, train folks and evaluate folks and, and those reps and sets, right? That mental practice of the decision-making process. The the one that we specifically brought up on the uh, on the previous podcast when James was here, and the one which most of the Army and Marine Corps folks are going to be familiar with is the wargaming step of the military decision-making process, which is a combination sort of rehearsal and data collection exercise, but it's, it is a very specifically defined step for a very specific purpose. There is the one that that I sort of learned about almost by accident, you know, 10, 11 years ago at this point, um, the, the idea of not to call it just a team building exercise undersells what it was, but the idea of the game at the start of the course or curriculum or program or whatever you're involved in that, that does serve as a team building exercise for the participants. It also serves as a tool for the faculty and cadre and instructors to assess the, the level of knowledge that the participants are bringing to the table. And it also serves as that common frame of reference for folks uh, later in the curriculum that the faculty can point back to that and go, hey, remember when this happened? And everybody remembers because they were all at the same game and and have a common frame of reference there. So those were some of the ones that I described. You notice I never mentioned an analytical war game at all. I also never really mentioned sort of the rock drills rehearsals that, that are designed to give people sort of that common operating picture of what things should look like. And rehearsals and rock drills are far less wargamey than they could be. Sometimes they have elements of wargame stuff break in there. Ed, I know you've done a whole lot of analytical 
wargaming in the past, in addition to sort of giving the audience a bit of a synopsis or some insight into what analytical wargaming does, what are some of the others that I might have missed in that brief inventory of, of where the professional wargaming world goes? Well, I, th I think one that occurred to me was, was educational gaming, which is a little bit different than training games. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a little more open-ended. The way I see training games is you know what the answer is and you're trying to get people to do the answer. Yes. Uh, the educational games, which you want them to think critically about a topic they're not terribly familiar with. Uh, Pete Pellegrino has a great game on the pandemic that he's put on at universities uh, where they, they get to essentially run their, their public health response uh, as part of the game. And uh, uh, it's an educational game in the sense that it familiarizes them with all the levers and, and, and pulleys and such that they have for uh, trying to do a public health response. Um, as far as anal analytical gaming, I think sometimes those are called games for understanding uh, as opposed to or games for insights as opposed to analytical games. And what they are is what I, I broadly characterize professional games as people who execute some aspect of that particular game topic as part of their job. So um, analytical games will bring in people whose job it is to do that particular thing, or at least they're adjacent to that. They have, have insights and information on it and have them run through a scenario or run through a, a game process to try to gain some understanding of interactions, of trade-offs, of decision spaces, those kind of things uh, within the context of the particular scenario. So for example, you have a, a rail car derailment in a town uh, and you want to run the emergency response process through how the town is going to respond to that rail car with hazardous materials derailment. Uh, and so you have the mayor, you have the police chief, you have the fire chief, you have all the lieutenants, uh, you give them the kind of things they would get, which would probably be a nine, first, first thing would be a 911 call about the derailment with no indications of hazmat. Uh, and so the battalion chief has to go out and park the fire trucks and, and, and begin the response. And then as it evolves, all of those different professionals have to do what they would do in their real jobs. And the purpose of that kind of game is both to help everybody, including the analysts that are there, understand what their plan is and where the holes in their plan are and where unanticipated things may happen that they need to be able to respond to. Uh, and so, for example, the, the sheriff may only have, not the police chief, but the sheriff may only have two, two squad cars that they can respond, and those are generally on patrol somewhere 50 miles away. And so they're expecting as part of the plan the sheriff to show up, but the sheriff's not going to show up for an hour. And so now they have to factor, they learn that, and now they have to factor that into their planning process. Likewise, it's designed so that, as first responders would say, the place where you don't want to meet each other is at the side of the, uh, of the event. You want to meet each other before that. You want to have a chance to talk. Uh, and so these kind of games give people a chance, especially those like in, in the emergency response example, that are going to work together, a chance to work together before they work together. Mm -hmm. And finally, these games give people a synthetic experience. The mayor in particular is elected. Maybe he, was, maybe he or she was elected only a couple of days ago. And so they've never done this kind of response before. The mayor of Tampa, for example, is a good, a good example that she's never been through a hurricane, but she's probably been Nobody through- Nobody in Tampa's been through a hurricane. It's been a hundred years since one hit there. Well, but if she's, if she's smart, she's, and, and the uh, local emergency managers have probably put her through a hurricane game. Yes. Uh, so she gets a chance to see how people are going to come in, 
She's going to get a chance to understand her role and the kind of stresses that are going to be on her for her role uh, in that particular situation before the actual event. And so these kind of professional games have multiple aspects to them, and analysis is just one piece of them. Uh, But the analytical piece is important because you can gain insights about what's going to happen. Now, of course, you don't necessarily use that all the time. There was a Hurricane Cam exercise that occurred about... Uh, about a few months even, I think, before Katrina, uh, and where they ran through a scenario of a Cat 5 hitting New Orleans, and they didn't learn very much, as you can tell. And so so that's uh, it, it's all subject to, uh, to people's interpretation down line. But that's the, that's, the, that's the thrust of analytical games uh, and these kind of games, professional games that, that I'm talking about. It wasn't just one Cat 5 hitting New Orleans. It, I mean, as I, my understanding is, is that FEMA had three default training scenarios that they would war game out on a fairly annual, uh, regular basis, either annually or biannually. They were big ass earthquake in California, Cat 5 hitting, um, hitting New Orleans, and whatever the other problem of the day was. I thought I thought the standard scenario was Cat Five hitting Miami. Oh, could be. Yeah. I, I I was told New Orleans, but I'm I'm that's not a space yeah. that I normally. Yeah, the so. one done by emergency management to try to try to try to do some planning for that, and that was the reason they said it, they didn't really push the insights was because it was plan it was a planning exercise, not necessarily a uh, a rehearsal. Yeah. Because I I remember I mean Cat Five hitting New Orleans was something they'd been worried about for a while. I remember seeing a sixty minutes article about how New Orleans was just going to get wiped off the map um, about ten years before Katrina. And here we get to very detailed terminology, which is the national exercise planning scenarios versus the FEMA yeah. HC. Um, the whole process of doing emergency management gaming is a thing of itself. Uh, we have actually at Moore's, we have an emergency management class and I bring people in that have experience with it because it is very complicated and bureaucratic. Yeah. And, and, and that's assuming the folks are familiar with just the normal FEMA processes you're expected to execute as a part of those games. The baseline is sort of the FEMA NIMS standard, the national incident management system. Just all that does is teach you what the roles are. It doesn't even teach you how to do any of them. Uh, And then on top of that, you've got all the state level stuff that may or may not, those are really only two options, but you know, follow the FEMA guidance. So, Ed, that, that's a great run through, I think, for some of the audience that's not going to be as familiar with some of the things that the professional wargaming world does. That said, our primary audience are the hobbyists. You guys are also hobby wargamers as well. What is it? What are the things that hobby wargamers are going to recognize in the professional wargaming world? And what are the things that the hobby wargamers are going to see that are going to be completely alien to them as they're looking at a professional wargame being exercised? And then Ed, I'm going to start with you and we'll throw it to Chris here in a second. Yeah, I, I think that I think that there's some, you know, there's a, as with anything, there's a spectrum of different kinds of games in the professional community ranging from very what we would call rigid you know rules-based games uh i think it's tim barrick and 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 jim lacy at the marine corps university have created this wonderful series of games that every hobby wargamer would recognize and many of them at the professional community who are hobby wargamers see these games and go where can i buy these things uh, and they're like on Ukraine and, and Central Europe and China. And that's the OWS, right? The Operational Wargaming System. Yes. And it, it's it's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. Uh, that's one end of the spectrum. Uh, and I think hobby wargamers would recognize that, but it would be a little bit on the complicated side. Uh, and uh, at the other end of the spectrum, there are policy games 
and uh, facilitated games, the kind of kind of games I do at the operational level, uh, that are very heavily more Dungeons and Dragons than than um, uh, board war games. And so you get this this sort of uh, almost separation. I, I contend that every game has to be facilitated. Because mo- you got a lot of, you don't have a, if you have a bunch of hobby war gamers, you can give them a bunch of rules and they'll read it and they'll love it and all that stuff. But with normal people, <laughs> you hand them a, rule, a 30 page rule set and expect them to play the game. I believe uh, the technical term is mundanes. Oh, I'm sorry. With uh, the mundanes, okay. you have to. So you, you need can't to call them muggles. Things. Muggles works. I think that's the biggest difference. Yeah, um, yeah totally. Thing. And, and, you know, the other thing that, you know, when I'm running these games at the operational level, at, at the unclassified level in my house, sometimes my my screens and everything have everything up with all the maps and charts and stuff. And we have everybody on Zoom and the AOC is talking to the JFAC and it's like we're in a talk. It, I mean, it's it, yeah. everybody passing tracks and, and talking about strike plans and that sort of stuff. And it's literally like we're in a talk. And so I think that level of detail of process, I think the other thing they won't recognize is the process. You know, you have a JFAC, you have an ATO cycle, air tasking order, JFAC, Joint Force Air Commander. The command and control that matters so much because the military guys are embedded in this command and control process. So you got to kind of get that right. And so that that idea of command and control, communications, uh, and process uh, for doing things is not something you necessarily see a lot in hobby games. The other thing for MDO operations that you're not going to see in hobby games uh, generally is the full spectrum of conflict from the sea level all the way up to geostationary, right? So if I run an operational game, I'm considering everything from geostationary down to the seabed. Now, I may abstract some of that, but but you're getting satellite, satellite vulnerabilities. You're getting high altitude reconnaissance, getting ISR intelligence search and reconnaissance assets. You're getting all these kind of things going on that we don't see that much in hobby games. You see a lot and in, 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 it becomes fat horribly important in, in, in actual combat. So, well, I think one of the, one of the reasons you can get away with doing that in the professional space, as opposed to the hobby spaces, it's rare in the professional space that two dudes show up and sit at a table. It, you know, in, in, in the professional space, these are, you know, anywhere from six to 600 people involved in some of these things. Whereas in the hobby space, it's a two player game and half those guys are adapting it to play it solo. Yeah. So, you know, it's just, it, it's the, the player headcount is, is so vastly different that to try and put that kind of cognitive load on just two people would bake their brains. And many of them are sitting officers in the military and some of them are are flag officers. And in some cases you're playing with the PCC or the deputies committee or the principals. And so you're literally playing with the secretary of defense and the secretary of state and those kind of guys. So that kind of rank structure is is not generally found in hobby games. <laughs> yeah, and sometimes what you're sometimes the purpose of the game is to get at sort of like organizational structures where the fact that they're playing the game, right? The external scenario where we're you know we're going to war against Yakistan. The fact that we're going to war against Yakistan, it's not really about the war against Yakistan. It's about how do you organize a maritime headquarters with maritime operational center attached to it. And and so what, what basically what you do is you sort of you set these guys up in the in the structure that you think that that the that this is going to look like and then you have them sort of play through stuff i mean we literally did a game in newport where we had up on the wall we had 
all of the structure, the organizational structure for the for this organization that they were planning on standing up. And while they're playing the game, they go like, you know what? No, no, this is wrong. And they'd walk up and they'd write on the organizational structure. Like this should be connected to this part over here. These guys should be under these guys over there. And they're putting notes up on on the on, up on the, the big printout that we had on the wall. The game, the war game part of it was just to get their heads into the proper space where they could be thinking about it like they would not standing back as sort of like a, well, you know, I think, Bob, that the way that this should work is, but actually like living it in the moment, right? Um, Peter Perla is fond of saying that the war game takes place in the players' heads. And that that's very much a case of what's what was going on there. Um, as far as like where the war game, you know, what, what a professional war game looks like, take everything that you've seen in um, like the origins or Gen Con complete a set of events, right? The complete uh, the program event list. Take that and expand it out so that the largest mega games have 600 or, or 800 or maybe more people and you're playing it distributed and you've got it. It's everything from professional wargaming includes everything from uh, COA analysis wargaming, course of action analysis wargaming, where literally uh, uh, at like Air Force Checkmate, they'd come in at nine o'clock in the morning and say, we need a war game. We need to brief the results of a war game you haven't designed yet at five o'clock today. <laughs> now you can do that when you're dealing with known scenarios, known order of battle, the game, the, the war is going to take yeah. place in two months, et cetera, et cetera. Because, and, and you're basically, all you're doing is sort of walking through it in an action, reaction, counteraction sort of way. But you, it does take a little bit of research and you can pull something together that fast for something like that. If you're talking about technology 30 years out, that's a different kind of problem, right? Because you may have to write the doctrine that they're going to use in order for them to use it in the game. Um, yeah. So that's that's a much different thing. So, yeah. 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 I, I think that the other thing that people would be surprised at is that, as I like to say, analysis occurs before, during, and after the war. Yes. And so you do a lot of preliminary analysis for these games. And when, as Chris says, for future systems, for complicated situations – you gotta you gotta do a lot of technical analysis to come up with an understanding of the systems before you walk into a war game and try to run it. Yeah. yeah. And the last thing I think that that's the big difference, because I think the other thing is just sort of like on scale, right? The thing that's um and in mega gaming and things like the national security decision making game, those things look a lot like the stuff I used most of the stuff I used to do up in Newport. Um the thing that that can be a difference in all of this is that if Ed and I are playing a game again uh, together, one of two things is the case. Either we're trying to beat each other or the two of us together are trying to beat somebody else and that other person may be the game designer, right? It may be a cooperative game like Pandemic or The Captain is Dead or something like that where we're trying to beat the system. Not every professional war game, in fact, I would argue if you're doing it right, most professional war games fit in the category of you're not trying to quote unquote win the game. What you're trying to do is explore a decision space. You're trying to explore the problem. And it's uh, the analogy that I always use about this is that a lot of these things are like eye tests, right? You don't win an eye test. 
There's nobody I've ever talked to has ever relayed the story to me about their eye doctor saying, I've run out of increasingly tiny letters for you to identify. Congratulations, you won. Right. As a guy who had LASIK surgery, I will say that I won my first post-LASIK eye test. I could actually read the bottom line on the damn chart. You're the only person I've run into. I, on the other hand, I, I, I get to the point where I fail on the eye test. And the, I said, you know, I really wish I had better vision. And my eye doctor looked at me like I was from Mars. Well, <laughs> and because, because he said, your vision is, when you've got your glasses on, you've got 2015 vision. It's like, I do? Because you feel like you, you feel like you failed because you did. Because it's a test to destruction, right? It's a test to figure out where you fail so that the neck, and when you're doing this professionally, it's so we want to know where the failure points are so we can fix that shit. Or at the very least, we can understand what the capabilities of what we're doing is. Start running until you fall over so I know at which point you fall over. Exactly. There's a lot of one-sided games professionally, like like the response thing, the hurricane. You're not going to beat the hurricane. Your your job- respond to the hurricane and so you yeah. mean you can't drop a nuke on the hurricane and make it go away <laughs> you know there's a related point in all of this which i which is this is you know i had it on my list of in my hip pocket i was going to say these words at some point during this conversation and now's a good time <laughs> um, there's a related point here which is the concept of realism in, in professional war games um i would I'm I'm perfectly happy to ban that those words. Um, I think the words "fit for purpose" work a lot better than realism because realism, the appropriate level of quote unquote realism, is whatever uh, fits the purpose of the game that you're trying to do. And so um, sometimes you want a game to be realistic because you're looking at, for instance, an operational plan. Other times you don't want it to be realistic, right? Because you don't want to waste time doing the things that you don't care about. If you're the United States Army, you really don't care about the air-to-air battle, per se, and you shouldn't be playing it out in any detail. The only part that you care about the air-to-air battle is how it affects the guys on the ground. And so set up the scenarios to figure out how it affects the guys on the ground. And at some point, the Air Force will go, well, that's totally unrealistic because there is an act of God that said that we never lose air superiority. And you, so I don't care right? It's not about that. It's about figuring out these other questions. So the example I use for this, when I'm explaining it to people who are unfamiliar with wargaming and need to have a metaphor that they can jump on, is a a pitching machine for a batter. If I'm the manager of a baseball team and I've got a batter that needs to get some reps in, a pitching machine is perfectly realistic as long as it can throw pitches that a human could realistically throw. Now, is it perfect? No, because you don't get to see the arm motion. You don't get to read the pitcher in the same way, right? So it only covers part of that problem. All models are wrong. Some models are useful, but it covers the part that you're trying to accomplish with that particular activity. If I walk into a game as the manager and I submit my starting lineup and it has the Pitchmaster 3000 on the starting lineup, that's not realistic at all. That's not baseball, right? And I, I get I get ejected, <laughs> right? So realism really depends upon what you're trying to accomplish. And like I said, fit for purpose, I think, is a better example than that. And a lot of times the right answer is leave out the part or, or at least don't adjudicate the parts that 
that don't actually go towards meeting the objectives of the game. Yeah. yeah. The, way I, the way I like to phrase it is games should be fair and accurate. And by accurate, I mean the engineering term accurate, which is yeah. how close is it to the actual answer, uh, as opposed to precision, which is how 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 uh, how 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 many zeros do you have behind the behind the number? Uh, you can be very precise, but you can be inaccurate. And so uh, we want the games to be accurate enough to give the players a simul the the idea that they're in the game, that they're in that actual event. Uh, but we don't necessarily have to have everything be so precise that it's a simulation of reality 100% of the time. So that's that's one reason that, that, you know, hobby games in some ways are a great metaphor for what we need to be doing in professional games because hobby games are in general an abstraction of a lot of that stuff into something that's playable. We haven't talked about playability, but playability matters for for professional games too. Uh, and I think there's a tendency in the professional communities to want to go to digital solutions, VR, AR, giant <laughs> screens and displays and stuff, because they think that's going to give the players a more precise uh, representation of reality. When in reality, as Peter and Chris have said, uh, it happens in the mind of the players. And what we're doing by that abstraction is giving them enough information to have that happen in their minds without overwhelming them with detail or, or bogging the game down and making it unplayable. Yeah, that, that idea of granularity does not necessarily equal realism is definitely something that we talked about on that earlier episode with James and Volko and, and the idea yeah. that you, you can get extremely detailed, but to utterly pointless purposes. And, mm-hmm. and so that's... That's something you do have to be careful of, whether it's a hobby game or or a professional game. And and I, I personally, I detest folks that think that granularity equals realism. Great, I can track bullet by bullet exactly how much ammo is on that tank. That's a spreadsheet drill, right? I'm not really learning yeah. anything from that. I I know how to count, like I know how to do stupid Excel tricks. I got it. I I don't I don't need to count individual bullets when I'm trying to figure out how to maneuver tank battalions around. As the Armchair Dragoons march into the ninth season of their podcast, Mentioned in Dispatches, we need to make time to thank our Patreon supporters who pledged at the regimental patron level. So a heartfelt thanks to Patrick Garrity, Mike Quigley, Joseph Knoll, Hethwell Wargames, Robert, Kevin Bertram, Chet Bell, Treb Curry, Staggerwing, and Patrick Mullen for their support of the Armchair Dragoons and helping us to bring you the best strategy gaming content on the web. You too can sign up as a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash armchair dragoons. Part of the purpose of tonight's show was not just to talk about professional wargaming in the large, but we've got this Connections Online showcase coming up. And in, in from the time people are hearing this, we're going to be about 10, 12 days out at this point. So there's still plenty of time to register and come join us. Uh, we've done Connections Online twice now. We've got the third one planned for next spring. And it's an outgrowth of the Connections conferences as a whole. And we'll let the both Chris and Ed talk about Connections as a whole. But what what's trying to set the showcase apart here a little bit is... A lot of the things that we do at Connections tend to be a lot of, of industry trends, wide ranging, large, you know, large scope panels. Let's talk about recent trends in prof- 
professional wargaming. Let's talk about building new wargamers. Let's talk about a lot of, of wide ranging things. And really what we wanted to do with the showcase day was was shine a, a, a Q-beam on a specific person who did a specific thing and really dig into the nuts and bolts of that use case. What was the game you designed? For whom? For what purpose? What was the research you did? How did you come up with the design? How did you iterate through that design? What did you learn from doing the design? How did the execution go? How did the players respond to it? What did you learn from the execution of that as well? And and so where the Connections conferences as a whole tend to be uh, much more panel driven and much broader, these are going to be very tightly focused on one presenter at a time, talking about one game at a time, a bunch of Q&A for the audience as a part of it. This is something new. Chris, you're your famous quote, right? The experiment was a success. We learned not to do it again. We're going to try this. We're going to see what happens. If it goes yeah. great, then we may try it again. If it doesn't, we may never speak of it again, but we're going to see what happens. Um, sadly, Ed won't be available to join us to present for, for this thing. With that in mind, and knowing that this is a podcast, not a broadcast where folks can like, you know, watch some of the things in there. It, Ed, is there is there a shorter war story that you've got about a specific game for a specific purpose that that you can get into a little bit of the nuts and bolts of without it turning into like a two-hour just talk about this one game kind of podcast i can do that one of the one of the things i i I did recently i'm I'm gonna use my cyber game that i did recently as an example uh i was uh engaged by uh, i was asked by the naval war college the uh Cybersecurity Institute up there uh, to do a game on maritime cyber, and so this this particular game had a uh, that would be cyber attacks against maritime infrastructure as well as ships and that sort of stuff. The uh, the Maersk attack that occurred a while ago, where they lost most of their computers except one in Africa, which they had to go fetch with an airplane and and use it to recreate their whole system. Uh, that's an example of this kind of cyber attack, uh, and. Uh, so the challenge was that uh, I the, the goal of the game was to really play it at DEFCON, which is uh, the major hacker conference that occurs out in uh, out in Los Angeles each year, uh, as part of their ICS community, which is the uh, instrument in, instrument control system community, uh, and uh, as part of their maritime subsection of that to play the game out there with actual people that have on-network cybersecurity capabilities, shall we say, um, and, uh, uh, and to try to learn from those people some of the vulnerabilities and the potential, potential challenges you might have uh, with cybersecurity for ports and, and ships. That, that created several different uh, simultaneous problems. One of which was, I'm, I'm playing with people at DEF CON. They know what they're doing, okay? They're far better than I will ever be at this kind of network security stuff. Uh, and by when I say network security, I mean I mean hacking. And so I had to be pretty airtight on the tech, tech side of the design uh, for those guys. In addition, I'm doing it with a bunch of people at a convention, Okay, they're they're there to have fun, too. Right. They're not there just to play my game the way most normal professional games are played. And so the game had to be fun and it had to be competitive. And so I had to bring in a lot of uh, uh, apps, a lot of I had to I had to uh, elide some things with respect to cybersecurity in order to make it both competitive uh, and fun for the guys. And I also had to abstract certain things to make it playable 
in the amount of time I had, which was about a half a day, about four hours. Um, and with people that didn't necessarily, though some would have a norm, this is the challenge of playing with hackers because I've done this with, with cryptocurrency too. Some people are gamers. They are better than anybody else on this. <laughs> but, you know, they're, you know, billionaires and in, 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 in cryptocurrency and others will have no idea what they're doing. Right. Um, and so that was a, that was a real challenge. And I, Ended up doing a lot of research uh, on the particular. T- I, I picked a target. I do not like artificial targets. Uh, therefore, I picked a target that was uh, an actual terminal. Uh, I had to scope down the game. So I scoped it down to one terminal that served one shipping company. It turns out that Maersk's, the APM terminal at the, at the Port of New Jersey, is only served by Maersk. And so I could marry those two up and just rename them and have a, ter- a very physical location with physical capabilities and, and uh, the shipping line, too, at the same time. So I scoped it down to just one terminal, which is completely unrealistic. You know, a hacker goes after or a, or a cyber attacker goes after every possible target and then picks the one they get into. Right. So here we have a bunch of, of attackers going after one particular target. That was one of the things that was unrealistic. And so I had to then build mechanics. The government player, I had, I had to put a government player in because I, I wanted to get some sort of mechanic to where if they were too aggressive or if they failed at something, they would have a chance of getting rolled up by law enforcement because that's what happens. And so I, I ended up having uh, them take uh, points uh, for each time, uh, forensics, what I call forensics points, which sort of uh, represented their exposure to law enforcement and their exposure to potential roll up. And so every turn, the defending player got a chance to pick which team, which attacking team would roll against the number of forensics points they'd accumulated to see if they were rolled up and they got penalties for that sort of thing. So those were the kind of mechanics I had to do uh, for the game to try to make it fun, entertaining, competitive uh, for a bunch of people in four hour scope. And then I took it to DEF CON. And the problem, I, first problem I encountered is we only had half a room. The other half the room, they were attempting to actually, every there's a lot of physical stuff that goes on DEF CON. They, people would bring their laptops and try to hack into some sort of uh, ICS system. And so there was people actively hacking all over side of the room and we were trying to play a game on the other the other problem i encountered at defcon was that everything at defcon is virtually a giveaway so all my cards i used cards as part of the game my dice everything people were coming up and stealing i had to chase after like a 10 year old boy that was stealing some of my some of my cards and so it was a very it was one of the toughest environments I've ever had to put off a game on, uh, but we did manage to make it a success. And I think we're going to probably be doing it back again next year as part of the uh, ICS village uh, at DEF CON. But it was, it was a huge challenge. It had a lot of trade-offs that were involved and it sort of shows it. I think it sort of demonstrates that you need to do abstraction. There's a lot of, of different competing cross currents in a professional game. You want to learn something, but at the same time you have to make it entertaining the same time you have to take it off and do it at some place like a convention. Uh, and th- so all these cross currents you have to kind of try to balance in your game in addition to making it as accurate as possible and standing up to these guys that know more than you do. So it's, it's, it's always a challenge I find. Uh, so, so coming out of that, what were, what were some of the reactions of the players? And then what were some of the reactions of the people on whose behalf you ran the game and that you had to provide some sort of report back? To? Yeah, I didn't, I didn't actually, we didn't, we didn't, <clears throat> I don't do reports anymore. I've done enough reports. 
Chris can Chris can acknowledge the fact that I've done enough reports for a lifetime. Uh, so uh, uh, yeah, no, we didn't we didn't do a report. Uh, some of the, one of the major insights again, this is the business of doing analysis before, during, and after the game. One of the major insights from the game was there's a particular vulnerability path uh, to the ships where uh, the lading manifest and everything is often offloaded onto a, a thumb drive uh, that's then given to the port. Uh, and so there's an exchange of hard hard material, cyber material between the ship and the port, which is is was clearly a vulnerability pathway we did not we did not necessarily realize. The other it's the computer equivalent of bodily fluids. Yes, the other the other vulnerability that I discovered was uh, was the fact that the first mate goes around and updates all the systems, including the engine systems, using thumb drives. So they all literally walk around the ship updating stuff. Uh, 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 dynamically, and it's not necessarily a cybersecurity person that's busy doing that. So that's another potential potential vulnerability path. And finally, the players discovered that within the port of one of the the port of New York, they 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 bring in these VLCC VL very large VLCS very large container ships uh, into the port, which accidentally happen to be exactly the channel width in length. And so if you divert them sideways. I knew it would block the channel. So that, well, that was all good. But then the players decided to change the ballasting in the ship. So not only did they cock it sideways in the channel, but then they tipped it over with all the containers on board and had all the containers spill out into the channel. And so that created a considerable mess. That that uh, now it's not just moving the ship out of the way; it's, it's also getting the containers that just formed a dam for you. I I remember when the uh, the the I think it was the Evergreen or whatever it was the one that was blocking the Suez Canal. That that part of the concern was that if that thing tipped over, the Suez Canal was going to be blocked. It just became the Suez Dam, and uh, and it was going to be a much bigger issue than uh, than than people realized so right next door to this game there was a group that had brought instrument control systems for ships for like a it was a yacht but it was and they had ballasting tanks and everything you could hook into their network and you could practice hacking these ships taking over the control systems taking over the navigation taking over the ballasting taking over all that stuff uh, as part of the part of the convention. Wow, that uh, that must have been some sight to see, if, especially if that's not a convention you normally frequent. No, I I was I was happy to be there. Yeah, but thirty thousand thirty thousand people is a lot of people. Chris, war story time. I'm I'm sure you've got one, and not speaking on behalf of any employer, past, present, or future. Um, is there one that that jumps out at, that's easy enough to explain in a bite-sized amount of time here? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm I don't speak for CNA, but I'm going to tell a CNA story. Um, mm-hmm. So back when I was working for Peter Perla at the Center for Naval Analysis, uh, Peter, Mike Markowitz, and I were asked by the CNA rep at the uh, Strategic Studies Group up in Newport if we could design a simple game that would uh, illustrate some of the ideas behind technical innovation and how to think about technical innovation, et cetera. And so um, so Al Nofi calls down and he says, yeah, do you guys have any ideas about something that, you know, technical innovation, et cetera? And I said, you mean? like, say, the pre-World War I naval arms race. And he said, yeah, that'd be a good one. I didn't pick it by random. I had been thinking about doing a pre-World War I naval arms race game for about two years at that point. 
um, because there was a, an interesting game called Steam and Steel uh, that had come out where where part of it is a, is basically it was a board game, board war game that had a tech tree sort of idea. And uh, each individual ship counter had a number. And so you could actually build different ships with different technologies on them. So the ships were not homogenous like they are in most war games. And I thought this was a really cool idea. And I had read, you know, John Samita's in defense of naval supremacy and you know, it was sort of, you know, live in the pre-World War I naval arms race dream. So so we decided that uh, it had to be a game that we could teach to non-gamers and including the uh, spin-up time for them, we had to be able to execute in about two hours. So that's a big, big lift. So what we eventually ended up concluding, the right answer was to do something that looked like a card game. And so we needed to have a, a, a section of the game where you're, where you're building technologies, where you're developing technologies and building them. And, um, and so I, I was really hard over on the idea, like, let's make the cards laminated and you can write on them with a grease pencil, et cetera. And um, there's a lot of ideas that I proposed over my time at CNA that Peter Perla absolutely despised, but that's the winner. That's the one he despised <laughs> the most. Yeah, I mean, he just sort of looked at me and said, under no circumstances are we going to do that. Okay, got it, boss. Got it. So, um, so what we designed a game called Sea Powers, and, it, and there are two phases of the game. There's a building technologies phase where you have to get your tech in place in order to start building ships. You also build doctrine. That's one of the things that was a little bit different. Um, is that we uh, we viewed doctrine as another technology that could be developed, and that doctrine is frequently the thing that turns your technology into something that is more than its original conception. Air Planes at sea were originally thought of as a way to scout and a way to spot the fall of shot. Now, it didn't take very long before somebody said, maybe we could drop a bomb from this thing. But even <laughs> so, it took a long time to sort of develop all the pieces that you need to actually make that happen. And one of those was a doctrine on how you employ aircraft carriers and carrier aviation. And so we included that in the game. We thought that was important to get across the lesson that you had to include that stuff. And we were able to successfully do a game that you could take a bunch of non-gamers and they could we could teach them the game and 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 they could learn it. And the first time we did the game, um, we did it. Uh, they had been together for a little while. This this was a program where they you took some heavy hitting O6s, uh, usually Department of the Navy, but not always. And they would do an in-depth study of a problem for a year. They spent about three-fourths of their time traveling during the early part, visiting various various um, vendors and scientists and stuff like that. And they, were, they would be given, given a, a problem to research from the, the chief of naval operations. Um, and then they do this long report at the end. And so um, the first time we did it, they had been together for a couple of months. Um, Al said, this was great, but you know, we should do it the first week they're here. This should, cause this, cause one of the things about, a, about having people play a game like that is that it's a good icebreaker. And so we specifically moved it up to make it an ice breaking function. Um, we've we rev the game once to sort of uh, uh, make the doctrine stuff work a little better and to tweak some of the values, et cetera, on the cards. Um, and um, I'm in the 
process of trying to pull it together to actually publish it as a commercial venture, uh, Chris Carlson's Adm- and Larry Bond's uh, company, Admiralty Games, is going to put it out at some point uh, once I actually, you know, finish the job. W- once I'm at the point where I'm able to work on it consistently again, as as Brant well knows, as somebody who's tried to work with me on a project, um, um, my life has been very, very interesting, the, uh, basically in 2022, um, and not in a good way. Um, and it's, it can be sort of distracting. Um, but, Two thirds uh, of me working with you and Merle on projects is getting you guys to stop tell war stories in the middle of a meeting. That's a fair cop. I mean, it is. Ed's nodding in agreement. Ed knows. Ed's been around long enough. Yeah, nobody has ever described either Merle or I as being laconic. Yeah. So, um, but... But um, Sea Powers, Sea Powers was a pretty outstanding success. I mean, I I, I still play it um, with people. Um, I still have people say, "Hey, let's play Sea Powers," um, and we need to now. We need to do a bunch of things like if we're going to publish it and and we're in the process of doing all this stuff, we need to replace all the artwork because Mike Markowitz was just grabbing artwork off the Internet because this was never going to go, you know, a handful of copies, not for publication, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, you know, we paid absolutely no attention to to copyrights, et cetera, because, you know, we weren't selling it. We weren't giving it away either. Um, it, you know, there's only there's only like five copies in existence, to the best of my knowledge. Um, but now that we're actually going to do it for real, we need to we need to go in and replace all that artwork. And Chris has been working on on making all that stuff happen. That, that's one of the things that people in the professional side forget all the time is that the artwork and the layout stuff for hobby games is a major component, particularly for digital, is a major yeah. component of everything they do and a major cost center. Uh, and so just that that alone is a major challenge sometimes. Uh, yeah, and there's there's other challenges that, that that the professional side has that the hobby side doesn't. Like, for instance, one of the problems we ran into with Sea Powers is so there's a there's a peace phase where you're building your Navy and, and tension is ratcheting up. And eventually the tension spills over and you get to the point where you're actually going to have a war phase. And the war is a highly stylized thing in Sea Powers. It doesn't look anything like any war you've ever seen. It's basically it's a card game um, and it's a card game based upon. Uh, of the mechanics of a commercial card game. And part of the reason why we did it that way is because legally we are required, we're required to account for every hour. We were at the point where we just didn't have enough hours left to sit down and develop our own combat mechanism. So we had to go and borrow one, um, which of course, you know, we didn't use their words. We used their system. Um, uh, the How intellectual property works in terms of game mechanics is an interesting thing. Not a lawyer, don't play one on TV, but the short version is um, as long as you use your words, you can't patent a system. And so, so and we didn't borrowed stop the, the guys at the Naval Postgraduate School from trying. Well, yeah, yeah, there's all sorts of, I mean, it's complicated, right? It, it, the, the right answer is to go talk to an IP lawyer and find out what you can and can't do. Um, yes. But, and, you know, and by the time we were done, we made a huge number of changes. Um, we made a huge number of changes. So I'm not, I'm not even sure that it's really recognizable where it came from originally. But but it was a case of we, you know, we we were running short on time. Now, truth be told, we probably really didn't have to think in those terms um, because this was literally going to be a case where we were going to take it and they were going to play it twice. Right. Yeah. So do we think that any of these mostly non-gamers who had never seen this game in two playings were going to be able to crack the code and prove that our game was broken? No, no. 
not not really not really you know we did want to we did want to do something that we that we went in knowing that the foundation was strong and so that's what we did yeah and that's and that's another challenge with professional games is you know hobby games these guys will spend a year play testing this stuff and yeah working on especially economic systems like what i often oftentimes for various kinds of games you have economic systems and those are very easily broken particularly by people that are geniuses uh, that you get to play in your games. And so so it it, it can really be a challenge in <laughs> games because you don't have that much time uh, to to spend working on it and, and sussing out all the potential paths to to destruction. So and one of the things that's funny about hobby games though is that in a general in an, as a general rule, not always the case, but generally you release a game into the wild and it's going to get play tested. It's going to get played more in the first couple of months than it did in however many years of play testing you did beforehand. And if you're not doing blind te- play testing when you're developing, it's even worse because somebody out there is going to figure out how to break your game. This is especially the case, um, at least in my experience, when um, when you're doing something like uh, like a science fiction game where you're not you're not trying to recreate a historical event that you can then compare your game to history to see whether you can generate the historical event or not. And if you're just making it up, making up the history, you sometimes end up with situations where it's like that doesn't make any sense. You know, like there's lots of science fiction games where they they give you like this is the force structure of the of the Space Navy. And it's like you play the game like four times and you go, these guys are just that's this doesn't make any sense. You'd have to be an idiot to build this. Battle there have been plenty of idiots down. building military structures throughout throughout history. It's not like that's yeah. an unrealistic condition that uh, you'd have to deal with. Well, I, I think I think the place really get into trouble are are, are engine games, whether it's an economic yeah. engine whether it's a political engine, whatever. All these games that have, if you do this, you get that, and then you take that and you buy this and you, you get more of that. Those kind of games are the ones that are most dangerous because those can be broken most. I think those can be broken most easily by someone who has some insight into the process. Yeah, and and you know that there's there's stuff like that that occurs in D and D and other things too. I, every now and then you'll see these things about like you combine these three spills together. Now your wizard has nuclear weapons. What's well, it's the pack, <laughs> pack of aggressive dogs in in a uh, night to the dinner table, right? They they start breeding war dogs and the war dogs get out of control and now you have these rampaging packs of war dogs destroying entire villages uh, across the countryside yeah it's always the second and third order effects that that get you isn't it yeah yeah positive feedback loops are a bitch (laughs) (laughs) why yes yes they can be so as, as we start to wind down tonight's episode here ed you've been around connections for a long time chris has been around connections for a long time i sort of make random okay i'm the comet that shows up at connections every you know several years and then disappears again for a while um mainly because connections keep scheduling themselves on dumb days like my birthday and i'm i I like you guys just not that much (laughs) and so as you look back over your time with the connections conferences is there any one particular moment or insight or or sort of war story ed that really sticks out to you over all of these years of these professional wargaming conferences that that really either has a personal resonance to you or sums up kind of what the point and the the ethos and spirit behind these conferences is well i've been going since like 94 or something like that so i i reach way back into the archives for mine (laughs) 
uh, I've gotten at connections. I've gotten to hang out with a lot of my heroes. I mean, Jim Dunnigan, I got to literally hang out with Jim Dunnigan and talk to him. Uh, uh, also, for some reason, Bob Justman from Star Trek came to one of the very early connections down in down in Montgomery. I got to meet him. I've also got to meet Dave Arneson, uh, from one of the designers of, of D&D before uh, at one of the at one of the connections conferences. So just for me, the most important thing is to make those sort of people connections. And because now when I went to this last face to face connections that occurred this year, I'm seeing all my friends. I'm seeing a whole bunch of people that I know. I'm getting reacquainted with them. I can do some business uh, in terms of like working with the guys at Pack Fleet to try, or Pack at Paycom to try to set up this conference. Uh, and so it's it's uh, it's just good seeing everybody uh, and getting a chance to talk to them uh, and hang out with them. And, and in some cases, you're hanging out with literally your heroes. Uh, and now now and now it's also an opportunity to try to help uh, some of the newer. Um, game designers, the newer people coming along that want to get into the sort of industry such as it is, uh, connect with jobs. And, and that's that was one of my themes with this latest Connections, the Connections uh, 22, was trying to connect people, uh, for employers with with people looking for jobs uh, and, and trying to get people together so that they can they can potentially have careers uh, in the field and, and sort of counsel them too. So that that's that's all very good. You sort of you know helping people along, I think, is another aspect that I really enjoy with connections. Yeah, there is definitely a family reunion feel to connections yeah. when you're able to get together in person, right? Pandemic years notwithstanding, uh, there there is absolutely a bit of a family reunion feel when you're there with everybody, and it it comes across definitely much more in the social hours after the sessions because when you're in the sessions everybody's sitting there watching whoever's talking uh but but afterwards when everybody's hanging out at the bar or the you know the downstairs restaurant at the hotel um yeah it's it, it, it's the family reunion it's kind of the best way to describe it there so um i know for me one of the first connections i showed up at actually got got us the contract for one of the the big professional war games that i did work on i'd already worked on some smaller things for the nsa uh but the, the gemstone game that plenty of people have heard me talk about on the podcast over the years came out of meeting one of the NDU guys at the Connections Conference that was held out right outside Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. It was some little think tank incubator something or other that Matt made arrangements for us to, to rent the conference room there. And The Chris, Wright I, Brothers Institute. Is that what it was? Yes. I, it, uh, it had some weird techie name to it, I thought. Oh, Tech Edge. Um, that, so right, yeah. right, brother. That that particular building is Tech Edge. Wright Brothers Institute. Um, there's a couple of different facilities. They they basically um, do a lot of support for the Air Force on Wright Patterson Air Force Base, and specifically, they do a lot of support for the Air Force Research Lab, yeah. where Matt Caffrey yeah. works. Matt had drafted me into being one of the panel coaches. So the first connections I ever showed up at, I wasn't an attendee. I was a panel co-chair as a part of it, and and brought me in based on some of the things that I had done at the Origins War College and said, mm-hmm. hey, I want you to come do this thing. All right, fine, Matt, whatever. It gave me an excuse to, you know, go visit my folks up in Columbus and then drive over to Dayton for that. And, and you know, six weeks later, I'm having dinner in D.C. with one of the guys from NDU who said, hey, we want to hire you to come do this game for us. And that turned into a three-year running engagement for the National Defense University. So it it wasn't dumb luck 
right? I mean, it was it was intentional luck <laughs> almost. Um, but but that first connections conference for me, I think, worked out great because these days connections has several hundred people at it, and that year, um, Chris, I think you were there that year. There yeah. there were I, there were seventy people, maybe. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it, well, it was not a big crowd. Okay. Yeah. The- it, we all fit in one room, um, the McFall room, which I believe is the big room over there, but it's not that big. Yeah, yeah. That was also the year, uh, one of John Compton's talks, that John's always, you know, wanting to just rattle cages and, and have something controversial in there. And, and and so this was before we had, you know, put, put a couple of bullet holes in Osama bin Laden, but he's got Charles Manson and Osama bin Laden side by side up on the screen. And he's going, what's the difference between these two guys? And like you point at Manson, we know where he is. <laughs> that, was, um, that, that was one of the highlight chuckle moments of the whole conference there. So I, Chris, is there a particular highlight that sticks out for you from the years of the connections conferences that did you end up with a job or did you just end up getting, you know, getting to make fun of somebody or meet your heroes or whatever? So, so, I mean, I, I, I have a very similar experience to Ed, um, but I'd also add that, you know, the connections conference, um, I started going to the connections conference in 2000. I just barely missed it in 99 when I started at CNA. So, um, uh, we met, uh, we met, uh, uh, the two principals of a small company called ThoughtLink. And we ended up doing a bunch of work with ThoughtLink for a while. Um, and so that that was a very lucrative, very uh, intellectually stimulating time just from working with uh, working with the ThoughtLink, uh, the ThoughtLink people. Um, that's also where I met Stephen Downs Martin, who um, is a name that shows up a lot. Um, and he's the guy who recruited me to go work uh, in the wargaming department of the Naval War College. That's also where I met some of the other Naval War College people for the first time. Um, um, uh, you know, there's there's people that I got to see you know, only at connections. Um, uh, John Tiller of John Tiller Software, um, may you rest in peace, um, was somebody that I always look forward to having lunch with John because we always made a point at some point during the conference, we'd sit down together and we'd have lunch together. And he yeah. was always a good person to talk to about stuff. Um, you know, that's where I met Matt Caffrey. Um, and so Matt's uh, uh, Matt's a, a good friend of mine um, that I've now known for twenty some years, um, and uh, Matt is the godfather of the Connections conferences. Like this entire, yeah, he's the founder. Is, he's the founder. It's all his fault. Yeah, it's he's the founder of Connections US, which sort of soldiered on by itself for about twenty years, and then the Brits said, "We're gonna, we need to have a conference like this. Do you mind if we use the name?" And Matt said, "No, go ahead." And so then we ended up with Connections UK, and that was sort of repeated over and over again with somebody saying we're gonna you know we want to have a, a conference here do you mind if we use the name and it's like no 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 go ahead go ahead so so the connections connections isn't really an organization it's a movement um in that yeah, all the different connections yeah <laughs> all the different connections conferences have their own teams that run them they run in, in their own way you know some are run you know very loosely some are run very tightly you've got one day events on the weekend you've got multi-day events you've got things that are connected to other conferences you've got things that are totally standard alone and just sort of people in their spare time um every now and then somebody uh, yeah connections online basically came out of you know there was a discussion about taking connections us and and doing it as an online thing um and i was part of that effort for a little while but it it just became clear that there you know the technology
technologies out there. There's using StreamYard, which is what we're using to record tonight. Um, it makes sense to sort of do stuff online and distributed. And uh, Brant and Merle Robinson and I spent a lot of time thinking about how to do that right, which is one of the reasons why, for instance, all the, you know, the main core sessions each day are two hours long. And the reason for that is we don't really have to build in breaks if you're sitting in front of your computer. If you want to pause it, you can just pause it and go off to the head, go off, make a sandwich, come back and restart it again. So we specifically decided we wanted to let let things have enough time to sort of naturally reach a conclusion. The, the um, stupid broadcast trick when you do that also, though, is that you pause, but when you come back to the computer, you set it to play in like one and a quarter or 1.5 times yeah. speed, and then you can catch back up to live much quicker and and most folks can still absorb whatever's being said at 1.5 speed so as we wrap up tonight i want to thank you guys for giving the audience some insight into a different world than they're normally used to you're obviously not the first of the professional war game crew we've had show up on on mentioned in dispatches you're not going to be the last but but you're the current one and uh and and this I think it's important to maintain, look, we've thrown the word connections around a lot, but but that's why the conference has the name it does. I think it's important to maintain those connections, those ties between the hobby world and the professional world, because I think there's a lot they can learn from each other. And so here at the Dragoons, we're always going to have a, a foot firmly in both camps and, and want to keep them there. And so, uh, Chris, thank you for coming back again and, and joining us. As always, we're, we've got connect, the Connections Online Showcase coming up imminently, and then we've got planning for Connections Online line in the spring that's going to have to start sometime soon so we don't go crazy trying to do it all in three weeks again um ed thank you for making your first appearance here with us on mention and dispatches i hope it's not the last that said as the new guy in uh, on the show here i'm going to give you the last word for the night well thank you for having me i really appreciate it and i do think the hobby world has a lot to contribute and we have a lot to draw from we have this vast literature effectively from the hobby community that the professionals draw from. And so it's it's really important for people to, in the professional community to understand the hobby world. And I think the hobby world will gain some entertainment, at least, from a, to interacting with the professional world. <laughs> yeah, yeah. that That's the hope, at least. That's that's the, the hope and the desire there. So, um, audience, thank you very much for joining us uh, here on this this episode. And still coming up, uh, look, we're going to have an episode on solo wargaming. We've got listener suggestions. So, if, if you've got questions for these guys, certainly drop them in the comments. But if you've got suggestions for future episodes, drop those in the comments or, you know, ping us on Twitter or throw something in our forums. We did set aside some specific episodes this season for listener suggestions, so we definitely want to hear those from you. Uh, later in the season, as we get towards the end of it, we've still got the Compass Catalog episode coming up. We do that every fall. Um, whether you want us to or not, we're still going to do it. And, uh, and and we've usually got some sort of two-hour bitch fest about the Charles S. Roberts Awards when they finally get around to releasing. Uh, so you can count on us being cranky for two hours complaining about those as well. So in, in the meantime, we hope you've enjoyed this look behind the curtain of the professional gaming world and we'll catch you another time on another episode of mentioning dispatches 